The reading is taken from Paul's letter to Philippians. It's on chapter 1. It's in two parts, verses 3 to 11 and 18 to 28, and can be found on page 1178 of the Pew Bibles. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart And, whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless For the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed but will have sufficient courage so that, now as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. Whatever happens... Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come to see, sorry, whether whether I come and see you, or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one Spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Yemi and Elizabeth, very much. It would be a great help if you have that passage in front of you, uh, page 1178. And uh, as you'll see from the new sermon card, uh, we are starting a new series. Uh, We've called it A Life of Joy and uh, studies in Paul's letter to the Philippians. 
Well, there are moments in life when you are given a special perspective. Uh, For example, when you hear exam results, do you remember that moment? You get a new job or unexpectedly given a serious medical diagnosis or, for whatever reason, face an uncertain future. Now, that was certainly the case with the Apostle Paul. When he wrote his letter to the Philippians, he was under house arrest in Rome, in chains, and facing trial. He was hemmed in and imprisoned. He didn't know when or if he would see the Philippians again, and so he wanted to highlight key things, essentials, about the faith that would stay with them after he was gone. There's no waffle here. His prison experience gave him a clear perspective about what really matters in life. And the other characteristic of this letter is that despite his circumstances, Paul's letter is shot through with joy. And the word joy occurs in various forms some 16 times. Why? Because the Christian life, despite what our outward situation may be, is a life of joy. And paradoxically, it means, and here's the title for this morning's sermon, it may mean gaining through losing. Gaining through losing. When it seems as if we are losing something, with God we can always find gain through it. Because God is no person's debtor. And it seemed to me that nothing could be more relevant at this time than a study of Philippians. As I preach my final sermon series here at St. Michael's, what are the essentials I want to leave with you? As you look ahead to the future and to my successor, what would God have you remember in this time of transition? I want to focus on just three things from this chapter one. Here's the first one, the joy of gospel partnership. The joy of gospel partnership, verses three to eight. Look at verse three. I thank my God every time I remember you, in all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Now, in one of my student vacations, I worked in the central warehouse of the John Lewis Partnership, which in those days used to be uh, in South Kensington. It's an interesting experience. I was in the lighting department. Lots of marble from Italy, I seem to remember. And I got an insight into the difference between being a partner and an employee. A partner is committed to the success of a company, and they share in its successes and failures. An employee doesn't necessarily. Paul is saying he and the Philippians were partners together in the spread of the good news of the gospel. Had they just been employees, the outcome would not have mattered so much. But to them as partners, it was a joint venture, and the outcome was vital. They were in it together. Paul had a very close relationship with the Philippians, and the story of his visit is told in Acts chapter 16, and it centers, in fact, around three people. Lydia, a businesswoman, a troubled slave girl, and a Roman jailer. They were an extraordinary cross-section of the community, They were, of course, of different nationalities, Lydia from Asia, the slave girl from Greece, the jailer, a Roman citizen. They represented every type of background and culture, a bit like St. Michael's then. A church is made up of partners in the gospel. We are working together to the same end. 
No one is more important than anyone else. We all count in this shared enterprise. Working on a difficult or challenging project can be very lonely if you're doing it all on your own. So much better if you're doing it with others. And certainly sharing and living the gospel in our secular world and nation is not easy today. And I want to put on record this morning how much I have been personally encouraged by so many of you who have, over the years, been partners in the gospel with me here at St. Michael's. It has been a true joy. I want to urge you to continue working together in the same way in future. And there's something else that Paul identifies. Look at verse 6. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. We are all, if you like, works in progress. And Paul is confident not just about what God has done for them in forgiving their sins, but also what he will do for them. For all those who had personally put their trust in the risen Christ, he is confident that God will keep them going in that same faith until Christ appears again. Once you put your life in Christ's hands, he will never let you go. So in John's Gospel, chapter 10, Jesus said, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life. They shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. So you need never fear that Jesus will let you go. You are truly his, his forever. And did you notice something else? Chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart, and whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. And Paul continues, God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Paul had a deep affection for these Philippians. They shared in God's grace. No pastor can do an effective work unless he has a deep affection for his people. In ministry, you share so much. The joys, the sorrows, the anxieties, the celebrations. For my wife, Tricia, and me, St. Michael's is our family. And that is why leaving will be challenging. We are absolutely clear, though, this is God's time to go. But like Paul, we have you in our hearts. And you will always be there. What a joy it is to share in the gospel together. Here's the second essential that he draws up. The joy of seeing Christians grow spiritually. The joy of seeing Christians grow spiritually. Paul now tells them what he's praying for them, his ambition for them, if you like. Listen to this translation of verses 9 to 11 by J.B. Phillips, who I think captures it. My prayer for you is that you may still have more love, a love that is full of knowledge and wise insight. I want you to be able always to recognize the highest and the best and to live sincere and blameless lives until the day of Jesus Christ. I want to see your lives full of true goodness produced by the power that Jesus Christ gives you to the praise and glory of God. 
Well, is St. Michael's growing more loving? Certainly, I've seen that in the practical concern and care that we do have for one another. For example, there's the listening to each other after services, the prayer, the hospitality, the welcome to the stranger. And this way of love has a depth of insight. The Study Bible footnote records, Christian love is not mere sentiment. It is rooted in knowledge and understanding. And then there's discernment. Paul echoes the same thought in Colossians 1.9. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding the Spirit gives. It's very demanding to live a blameless life in a nation which has lost its moral compass, a nation which has no magnetic north because it has turned its back on God. It's challenging, too, in a denomination which increasingly downplays the authority of Scripture when it comes to our behavior. And why would you have any regard for Jesus or Scripture if you have no fear of God, no respect, no appreciation of God's authority. Over my 42 years of ministry, I've seen not just unhelpful teaching, but indeed some downright heresies. Yet throughout church history, it has always been so. Which is why, in Ephesians 4, Paul again writes of reaching a mature faith, so that we will no longer be tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and, listen to this, by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Now, an interregnum, the time of transition between one vicar and the next, is a great opportunity for growth, a time to grow in love for one another, a time to mature spiritually, so that you can discern God's will. How can you know God's will? How can you discern what is best? How can you live pure and blameless lives for the day of Christ? The answer is through continuous, regular prayer. And that's why I'm so pleased the Church Council have planned regular prayer meetings for that very purpose. Pray regularly on your own too about the choice of my successor as Trisha and I are personally doing. So at this special time, I'm praying that the Church Council and you, the congregation, have real knowledge and depth of insight. God has certainly given it to us in the past, and I know we'll do so again as our love increases and grows. And isn't there such joy in seeing Christians grow, knowing that we are all growing spiritually. Here's the third essential. The joy of putting Christ at the center of our lives. The joy of putting Christ at the center of your life. Have a look at verse 12. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it became clear throughout the whole palace guard to everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. 
The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. What does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Paul's great passion was to preach Christ. It became clear to the Roman soldiers imprisoning him, verse 13, that he was in chains for Christ, not for any crime that he'd committed. He'd become a bit of a celebrity. And as a result, some were jealous of his success and fame. Nothing new there. And they decided to copy him by also preaching Christ, but with a different motives out of envy and rivalry. He didn't care about that. He had the bigger picture in mind. Verse 18, what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And then note how he concludes, and because of this, I rejoice. And Paul now goes on to utter one of the most impassioned statements in all his writing. Look at verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ. To die is gain. Christ was everything to Paul. The one who described himself in a letter to Timothy as having once been a blasphemer, a persecutor, a violent man, became one of Jesus' most ardent followers. Paul, a man who, as we will see in chapter 3, had everything going for him, intellect, status, education, reputation, the best this world can offer with its glittering prizes, turned his back on it all to gain Christ. And again and again, he determined to proclaim Christ. So writing to the Corinthians, I was determined to know nothing among you save Christ and him crucified. To the Galatians, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that passion explains why Paul could look beyond this life to being with Christ, which, verse 23, is better by far. As the Study Bible says, Christ was the source and secret of Paul's continual joy, even in prison. Now, we need to be as passionate in the same way about Christ in the coming days. And make no mistake, it's very easy for that priority to become stifled by other agendas, some of which may even be good. But without that laser-like attention to Christ, the church can become like a polo mint. No center, no reality. It's vital to ensure that everything, the teaching, program, Alpha Course, Children's Church, special events, are all focused on introducing Jesus to those who, like me, didn't know him personally, and on how to live in a daily relationship with him. It was C.S. Lewis who articulated the key question that each of us has to answer for ourselves. He put it memorably like this. I'm trying to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher. I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. He would either be a lunatic or else he'd be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. 
either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. Summed up in that memorable phrase, Jesus was either mad, bad or the son of God. And then Lewis concluded, let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So, can you say that about Jesus for yourself? Have you examined his claims honestly? Have you put him at the center of your life? For that is the only way to a life of lasting joy. And I want to draw your attention to something else which reappears later in chapter 4. Having Christ at the center of his life meant Paul had a positive outlook on everything that happened to him. Just reflect on his situation. He's confined under close arrest. Well, he could have complained so easily to God. This great evangelist who'd planted many churches might have asked why God had stopped him going on another missionary journey to preach the gospel. But then he considered what was actually happening. He was chained probably to a member of the Praetorian Guard day and night. The guard was changed on a regular basis. So Paul had a literally captive audience. They didn't escape and couldn't escape from Paul telling them about Jesus. There's something slightly humorous about this. And then cast your eyes over verses 12 to 14. As a result of this arrangement, what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. Bear in mind that the Praetorian Guard were the elite unit of the Imperial Roman Army, the personal bodyguards of the Emperor, and they had significant political as well as military influence. It's hardly surprising, as you read on in chapter 4, verse 22, that the gospel had reached Caesar's household. So far from hindering Paul's ministry, his imprisonment meant that the gospel had penetrated deeply into society in a way never thought possible, even to the highest echelons in the Roman Empire. In addition, as if that wasn't enough, Paul's imprisonment had actually emboldened the other Christians to be more confident in the Lord and to dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear, verse 14. So what on the surface looked like a major setback was not a setback at all. It was a win-win situation. It was indeed gaining through losing. You and I need to remember that wherever God seems to restrict us in some way, either at work or at home, he has some greater purpose in mind. And there's no greater joy than being used to help someone put their faith and trust in Jesus for the first time, or perhaps in bringing them back to Christ. Towards the end of his life, Billy Graham, the great evangelist, said that after all the years of his ministry, he had never lost the joy of seeing someone's eyes being opened to the risen living Christ. I echo that thought too. Why don't we all pray that God will use each of us to see one person turning to Christ in this coming year? That we may grow spiritually in that area.
So, to sum up, the essentials. The joy of gospel partnership, the joy of seeing ourselves and others growing and maturing in faith. Above all, the joy of putting Christ at the center of our life and how that can transform the darkest situation. These are all essentials for every Christian. And so, as Paul says in verses 27 and 28, we all need to live in a way that is worthy of the gospel. And we need to stand firm, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. So let me finish with a true story. Jenny Erickson Tudor was a 17-year-old fun-loving teenager when she dived into some shallow water in the Chesapeake Bay in America. She was left a quadriplegic, never to walk again. And she battled with God many times about why he didn't heal her. She went through a great deal of physical and emotional suffering, including two broken engagements. But in the end, her faith held and won out. She eventually married a wonderful Christian, and her books and conference speaking have encouraged probably millions all over the world to see how God can bring gain, even joy, out of the greatest loss. For it's a life of joy indeed. Let us pray.